Two, you on eight. Two, you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. We are live here at the Rocky Mountain Trauma Conference, and we have with us Dr. Jeffrey Upperman, who just gave a fantastic lecture, the most fun lecture of the day. So thank you for agreeing to come chat with us. Hey, glad to be here. I'm Jeff Upperman. I'm the Surgeon-in-Chief at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital of Vanderbilt. I'm the Chair of the Department of Pediatric Surgery. I second that. I like the energy. It was good. End of the day, I, you just got to come hard. You yeah. got to throw them high fastballs, you know? It was perfect. People were engaged. They were whiffing them at first, but then they started hitting them. <laughs> they caught on. So your lecture was on pediatric preparedness. Is this a specific interest of yours? It's about 15 years actually ago that I decided that I needed to differentiate from my boss You know, I had a passion for trauma, but I thought one area that was underdeveloped was pediatric disaster preparedness. And so that really started our journey down this road. Awesome. And what have you done in those years? Well, early on, it was a lot of hit and miss in terms of grant funding, but we eventually got grant funding from the Department of Health and Human Services to develop a pediatric disaster educational platform plan, et cetera. They gave us a ton of money. We had a very short time to get together. And it really took the whole strength of the Los Angeles County Department of Health and Emergency Medical Services to really bring it to fruition. And we had a lot of partners doing it. The video really set the stage. If you saw the video, you would have been like, what? I will link to that video in the show notes. And you have a resource or an online resource people can go to to reference as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as I had mentioned earlier, we published well over 100 publications around pediatric disaster preparedness. I currently sit, and all my opinions are my own. I'm on the National Advisory Committee for Children's Disaster. I'm a sworn member of that board that advises the Assistant Secretary of Preparedness Response. And so I'm sitting at the table with folks who are really trying to move the chain, if you will, and trying to get us to be better prepared as a nation. Well, this is a topic, not necessarily pediatric preparedness specifically, but disaster and that sort of thing was a passion of mine when I was working in EMS. But one of the things that really stuck out to me early on in your presentation is you talked about identifying principles and guidelines, because when the big thing happens, the plan's going to go out the window or the right people aren't going to be in the right place at the right time or that sort of thing. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but could you tell us a little bit about how you feel about that and how people can implement that sort of philosophy? Sure. So I'm a non-planned disaster zealot. And what I mean by that is, let's unpack a little bit about how I approach the audience. The first thing I asked them were, were they parents? To sort of set the stage for who I was talking to, but more importantly, to point out to that audience that people have children that are very important in their lives. And so if we are reacting to some badness, one of the first things you're going to think about are themselves and their children. And depending on the age of their children, may depend on how anxious they are in working with you, working for you, or in thinking up things that they need to do in response to this crisis, because they're thinking about their family. So when you think about how you're preparing your teams, I think one of the more important things are, is to do a family check Hmm. and to make sure that you know your teammates well. And I know HR things are usually like, oh, you can't, you got to know who your teammates are because there may be a point where they need to go home and that's the best place for them. Hmm. I I think we see that time and time again, right? With, you know, mass shootings at schools, the uh, the parental instinct 
kicks in and people just flood to the school because exactly. they want to take care of their family. Exactly. And that's something to think about. So, you know, uh, you all know about Covenant, that our hospital was all stood up and prepared to deal with. And what was most striking about that is we still had a role, even though there was no care to be rendered. And we had to do crowd control and we had to do family reunification in a morbid way, but we had to do it. And we were prepared to do it. So our command center was fully stood up. We had a plan for dealing with the media. We had a plan for dealing with families who were coming in. We had a plan for working with the police department and so on and so forth. And so it's not always all of the frontline things that people want to assume that a hospital would have to do. There are a lot of other sociologic and social community-based things that you're going to be asked to do in the face of a disaster. How do you approach colleagues or folks that they, they just want the plan? They just want to pull that binder off the shelf and rely on that. Because I've interacted with a lot of those folks and sometimes people want a, just a black and white answer. And it's like, well, it depends. Well, I, I, again, I, I say I'm a non-plan guy, but that doesn't mean you don't have a plan. Hospital and command system is well thought out. You know, they might be on version three by now. And it really tells people what their roles are and how to do things in the face of disaster. So it does give some very good information. The question I always have is, that's like having a playbook, but then when they're big uglies on the other side coming to crash your head in, are you prepared to deal with the consequences of what they've been prepared to do? And again, a, a disaster for the most part is agnostic if we're not talking about human related. And so how are you able to bring forth excellence when your plan within the first set of contact just went out the window? And then how do you get back to the plan when things normalize in some particular way? Mm -hmm. And I think a huge piece of that, and you echoed this in your lectures, is you got to train. You, you got to practice. You don't know where the holes are until you try to pressure test what you're going to do. Would you agree with that? Or I, I would agree that you have to train, but the type of training that we did when I was in Los Angeles was real different than a lot of people did. Matter of fact, it was lauded as being a joint commission standard of sorts, because it was less about what the individual exercise. So let me tell you about what the Olympics was all about. So we had about a half dozen tests, childs, challenges. The only ones who knew about what the challenge was going to be was the steering committee, and the captains were briefed, I believe it was 48 hours before the actual event. The teams had no idea what the various stations and things were going to be. And then they were in it. So they go to station one. It's like, okay, now you're going to evacuate 20 babies off the roof of this building. Go, 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 go. And why do we do that? Well, you're not going to go to work knowing that the earth is going to shake. <laughs> You're not going to go to work knowing that some crazy person has done some bad things downtown. You're not going into work knowing that your power is going to be off for the next week. So we wanted to bring that spontaneity. We wanted to bring that intensity of the moment. And I, I wish we had put some uh, wearables on the teams. I have some pictures where you clearly see folks sweating and getting into it because we make it that real. Obviously, we have safety folks out there. We have observers. We have scores and all of those things. One of the exercises I thought was really fun was uh, we put five-gallon jugs of water crap. I mean, it wasn't truly crap, but it looked like crap. 
we called it the bucket relay or whatever. You had to move it 50 meters and move it back without spilling anything. The thought was that this was radioactive waste from your bathrooms that you had to control your waste. Because when you ask the average healthcare worker, if you were to lose plumbing and your water supply, how to manage your waste, they'd be like, oh, I'd call environmental. No, it's the middle of the night. There's one person who's on duty. You have to manage your own waste. And many hospitals have cancer units and some of them are going to have radioactive waste. It's real. Yeah. It's a real challenge. But we bought it down to street level to show them just how hard it is for something that sounds so straightforward. How were a lot of those folks impacted from doing the Olympics? It was a crowd favorite. Everyone enjoyed doing it. Some folks, I think, who were not truly going to be engaged in preparedness and disaster planning, all that, I think they really came to appreciate it. We were able to do some things with the organization to get them more engaged. We actually got the medical staff office to approve a learning module that all physicians had to do every single year to get credential. Snuck that one under the radar. <laughs> but, you know, docs, I don't want to yeah. do that. Well, here's one thing you're going to have to do. Hmm. And I, I don't, I'm not looking for you to be a disaster maven. I'm just looking for you to be engaged. And if I can get your engagement for 20 minutes once a year. As, it, as it relates to pediatrics, do you mm -hmm. find there's some consistent stumbling blocks or blind spots as agencies, facilities, municipalities build plans or train things? Yeah, I, I think we're all concerned with our own mortality, to be blunt. And the next thing is we think of our kids. That's why, again, I start with who has kids, you know, so most of the people stood up, but for even for the ones that I'm sure they have nieces and nephews. And when you start to bring the thinking down to those individuals who are not you, who are not your size, who can talk, maybe they can't talk, maybe they need to be carried. We had a whole area looking at kids with special needs. We don't tend to plan with that in mind. And that's what you need to do. You need to walk in the classrooms and see the whole classroom. You need to understand that the reason those parents aren't here is because they take three buses to work. And if they've shut off the public transportation system, we got an issue. I always ask adult hospitals when there's in crisis mode, I'm like, what's your three-year-old plan? They're like, what do you mean? Well, if they bring a bunch of kids to you, and I always pick three because it's an interesting age, they can say enough and they're mobile in most cases and do enough to cause enough havoc that you need to account for them. And so you need to have SpongeBob available. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I used to ask them, I was like, do you have SpongeBob? Do you have videos? Do you have cartoons? Like, for what? For all those kids that are going to come that are either going to be kids of victims they may be injured themselves, mildly not requiring any significant stuff, or they may be the children of your workers, right? Because many hospitals have daycares across the street. What are you going to do? You're going to need them. So you're going to, you got to have a kid plan. So I'm not asking you to do anything extraordinary. I'm like just reminding you that you need to be prepared for the obvious. I think another thing that you emphasize that people often overlook is identifying your stakeholders. Yes. Yeah, stakeholders are absolutely key in this business. One of the things we did as an organization and our trauma team vis-a-vis -vis our disaster folks 
we literally walked around the block and introduced ourselves to vendors, buildings, agents, whatever. Because at minimum, I said, if our building goes dark, we may need that fill-in-the-blank burger to be our nutritional support. It'd be nice to know Bob before we need Bob's burgers, right? <laughs> It'd be nice to know. So let's go meet some folks. And let's say maybe we even do some events and cater with them just so we have a relationship so that if it hits, we got some friends out there. You've mentioned a couple of times, fill your Rolodex or know who's in your Rolodex, but kind of like that, the stakeholders and the relationships are just so foundational. And I think when you ask that in a group like this, you always end up coming out with more than you thought of. Mm -hmm. And so doing that as an exercise, wherever you work is also valuable. It is. It's, it's very important. And I would tell you that when big things happen, I get phone calls from friends around the country checking in because they know, and they know what's going to be needed and how those resources play. I, and I'm talking about people who are administrators in FEMA, who are administrators in city emergency management offices, who are clinicians, who are nurses, because they're on the national scene and they recognize that some of your best resources may come from outside of you because they're dispassionate. They're thoughtful, they're empathetic, but they're not in it. They're, they know where their kids are. They know. I mean, I, I'll tell you a little story. Covenant was crazy for me. I was given an oral board exam for American Board of Surgery, and I was sitting, giving the exam. We do it all by Zoom, so I'm looking at the thing. My watch is blowing up. I can just feel it buzzing, and I'm thinking to myself, why didn't I take this off? And I got to, you know, and like, all right, tell me a little bit how you deal with this gallbladder. And, it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. It keeps buzzing. So then came to a break, quickly picked up my phone. And I'm like, why do I have 20 messages? It's something not. And then I noticed one of them was from another examiner. He's like, how are you? I'm like, fine, I'm giving the exam. Why are you, know, what's going on? Long story short, when I got to the lunch break, turned on, I had no idea what was going on. Because it's just, how are you okay in Nashville? Went to the computer, you know, jumped in some three-letter station and, and basically said, oh my goodness, beeline down to the emergency department. There was nothing to do at this point, but got my trauma guy ready for the media piece that I knew was coming and, uh, you know, kind of filled in because I had to report back to do the exam in the afternoon, but just did my part, just... You know, you, you stay out the way. You don't play this, I'm in control. You have systems in place. Let them do their thing. And that's one of the things that you'll get a lot of people. They'll say they believe in the plan, but then when it the plan is ready to go, then it's like they want to step in and know better than the plan. So why did you just make me go to meetings and drink cold coffee and eat bagels if you're not going to follow the plan? Yeah. Yeah, my heart to your staff in your hospital, because that's a terrible situation to deal with. Are there any broad lessons learned that you'd be okay to talk about from that? Because I, I think um, that's a call that none of us really want to have to handle. Well, it's nothing new. I'm not going to talk about covenant, but I just talk in general. I think it's important for all families, but in particular young families, to have family preparedness plans. You know, where are we going to meet? Where are we going to rally? Who's going to get who? 
who is a trusted set of two or three friends who will have the permission to take our kids or will have the ability to interact with the babysitter or interact with the daycare center. Those types of things, I don't know that young families necessarily want to think about those contingencies. But look, our families, you had mentioned that you are now in North Carolina. I mean, we just don't stay in our hometowns anymore. And so we're trying to replicate community in multiple stops. And part of that is growing your Rolodex, but also having some plans on how you're going to use that Rolodex in that crisis day. Thank you so much, Dr. Upperman, for coming to chat with us. If I can just summarize for anybody out there wanting to kind of start thinking about this at their own agency, the main points of your pediatric preparedness 101 for me were, first of all, know your family. So know who your staff is, know a little bit about their backgrounds and how the things may affect them. Number two, you need to know your most common threats in your region. And so know what your possible threats are going to be and plan for those. Number three, name your stakeholders. Know and understand who your stakeholders are, have their phone numbers, have those relationships made ahead of time. And then finally, you need to train on all of this. You need to plan, you need to educate, and you need to train regularly and understand that you can plan as much as you want, but those plans are principles and you may need to audible or you will need to audible because you can't plan for every scenario. Great. And I would just nuance the training piece because again, everybody thinks, we just did a training exercise. Well, I'm not going to beat people over the head with, you know, we're going to do this tabletop exercise or we're going to do, we did three tabletop exercises, just like that. Painless, quick. You could do that during staff meetings. You could do that during the beginning of a standing meeting. You could do that with your family around the dinner table. You know, and, and so I try to make these things fun and make them in a way that is respectful of your time, but also generates some things that makes you start to think. Appreciate your time today. This is fun. No, thank, thank you, you so much. much. Yeah.